I'll be reading from the first chapter of James, verses 19 through 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is God's Word, and please be seated. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we need You more than ever. We need You more than ever. Your grace, Your love, Your mercy, Your strength, and your word to become integral in our life in such a way, Father, that that we live out uh, in such a visible, tangible way the gospel that, that has changed us. We pray that you will help us to see the footsteps of the Christ that we may see them clearly and and walk step by step each day following Him, shouldering our cross and, 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 and being changed by degree each day into conformity with His life. We're grateful for this letter, Father, that, that challenges us at so many different levels, but, but confronts and challenges and spurs us on, Father, to, to look like the Christ and, and to live as first fruits in Your creation. To this end, Father, we pray that You'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask all of this with humility in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Up on the screen is a a statement that we've been using. If you're visiting with us, it's a statement that we've been using as we have gone through the Bible, book by book, week after week, from Genesis, and now we're kind of coming up on Revelation at the end of the year. But it's a statement that we've used to kind of guide our thoughts and to kind of give us some parameters in our thinking. The statement is, the Bible is not a collection of random stories, but it's one story. 
It's about God. It's about man. It's about what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together. Now, this morning we're going to, we're going to consider James. James is uh, a letter that from time to time gets picked on. The church has had, and, and you know this as well as I do, the church has sort of had this love-hate relationship with the book of James. Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he compared the letter of James to the rest of the New Testament, he said, you know what it's like? It's kind of lightweight. It's kind of like straw. Now, here's a flashback, a, a, a baby boomer flashback. Remember the 1970s Wendy's commercial? These three ladies were always asking, where's the beef? Well, Martin Luther literally was asking, where's the gospel when it comes to the letter of James? Well, it has been, you know, debated. It was one of the last books to make it into the New Testament. Historically, the main issue, it's not the only one, but the main issue deals with how James writes about faith and how he writes about works. But one of the things that we always need to remember about James is that James is writing to, and he says it in the very first verse, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. He is writing not just to Jewish people. He is writing to Jewish Christians. People who have embraced the Gospel. He is writing to disciples of Jesus who are Jewish in their DNA, who are scattered throughout the world of His day. A people, as you know, who historically trace their roots back to Abraham, to steal a phrase from Paul in Romans chapter 4, who was the father of the faith, but who had gotten bogged down in legalism and self-righteousness. And now they have heard the Gospel. And that has freed them from the burden of trying to earn their salvation, has, has freed them up from legalism, has freed them up from self-righteousness. But you know as well as I do, what happens when people have been living that way and they've been freed up, what happens is they really get freed up. And so James writes this letter to describe what a person who is a disciple of Jesus, who is a person of faith in the Messiah, what that person looks like. And remember, he is writing to people who believe the Gospel and who have faith in Jesus, but he wants them to know that faith is not just intellectual, it's also incarnational. Faith is not just all of these doctrines and all of these facts and all these truths that you believe, but these are things that are supposed to be lived out. It's incarnational as, as the Word became flesh. So God's Word becomes flesh in the way that we live it out. Faith is not just a truth to be believed, but a truth that radically changes the way that humans exist in this, in this time. Salvation frees a person up to live in a new way, the way of Jesus. The presence of the faith that saves a person is demonstrated in a changed life. And in that, James is not alone. Most of the New Testament writers say basically the same thing in as, as many words. Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul is writing. And Paul, at the very beginning of a, of a letter that he's writing to a church where he's never been, he says, I want you to know this, that we received grace and we received apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the what? Obedience that comes from what? Faith. For His name's sake. And you know, in the middle of that letter, beginning uh, with chapter 6, actually the end of chapter 5, beginning in chapter 6, Paul is dealing with uh, some things that he's heard about. People 
People, once they have been freed up from legalism and freed up from the burden of trying to live the law uh, in such a perfect way, that all of a sudden they say, well, if grace is what's saving us, then why don't we do whatever it is we want to do so that grace can abound, that we can do whatever we want, and grace is going to cover that. And Paul says, no, absolutely not. Remember your baptism. And then he says in chapter 6 and verse 4, as Christ was buried, we therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may what? He doesn't say have a new life. He says live a new life. And then that old friend of the Messiah, John, the Apostle, at the end of his life, 1 John chapter 2, writing to those churches in Asia Minor, second chapter, he says, if anyone does what? Obeys His Word. Love for God is truly made complete in Him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. I like the way that the old NIV said it. It said, walk as He walked. And this is, so, this is the way that James is going to say it towards the end of the first chapter of this letter. We call James. He says, do not merely listen to the Word. You know, just listen to it. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives Gives what? Freedom. And continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. They will be blessed in what they do. Faith is what you believe and how that belief changes every aspect of your world. Now when you read the commentaries, and there are lots on the book of James... You see a lot of different opinions on how the book is organized. For instance, there's one fellow that says, when I read James, what I see are five mini-sermons. There's another fellow by the name of David Nystrom who has written a very, very good commentary on James. And he, 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 he divides the book up in a way that I think is not only practical, but makes a, a lot of good sense to me. He basically divides it up into two, two parts. The first part is, what does a mature Christian look like? Somebody who says that they are spiritual, that they are a disciple of Jesus. What does that person look like? And then secondly, and that's kind of the rest of the book from chapter 2 on to the end of chapter 5, what does a spiritually mature or a spiritually healthy church look like? And that's kind of the way that we're going to attack this, this letter this morning in this one-off sermon on, on the entire book of James. We're going to be thinking first about faith and the mature disciple. Now, somebody said, it, and I, you know, it's, it's sort of a pithy little thing, but it makes a lot of sense. Somebody once said that, that Christians are like tea bags. You never know what's in them until they're in what? Hot water. Now, you, you think about that and you go, oh, man, that's so pithy. But, you know, it's absolutely true. And that's where James begins. The first area in the book of James is faith and suffering. And the letter begins with, with, with suffering. It's not the most pleasant or most positive way to begin the book. But he says, you know, he, he begins to talk about suffering. And while the circumstances are, of suffering are always important, what James is concerned with is the attitude of the disciple. 
That's why he writes that disciples, when it comes to this adversity and trouble and, and the hot water that we sometimes find ourselves in, that the disciples should not surrender to temptation, but to stand firm in trials, knowing that God's power in that trial will bring out the best version of that disciple. And so he says in verse 4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be what? Mature and complete. And then say these last three words with me. Not lacking anything. Not lacking anything. Can you believe that? This is why James says, ask for wisdom from God. Ask for wisdom. The lacking nothing is not the result of, of human endeavor, human willpower, human positive mental imaging, but it's the eventual product of faith in God. Remember, James is writing to Hebrews who equated, and not just they, but we do the same thing, who equated God's blessing with the absence of suffering. My friends, I've said it before, I'll say it again, that is a disastrous theology. All that they needed to do was to think back to their Old Testament wisdom literature. Job. Job is described by the Bible as the most righteous man who ever lived in the East. And yet he suffered. And yet he suffered. And that suffering broadened his understanding of God and his world. And then there's Daniel, the great prophet, who suffered. And he suffered precisely because he was steadfast in his faith. What James is trying to underscore at the beginning of this letter is that suffering is very often the experience of the faithful. To be faithful and steadfast and to stand firm in the presence of God in spite of what's going on around you is, is part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth from time to time. But that's not maybe exactly what he's honing in on. You know, it was a, they had another experience to draw from. It was the experience of the desert. Think of the desert wanderings. Think of, 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 the, of, of the 12 tribes in the desert. It was not just their experience to suffer, but to, but to blame God for the suffering. To blame God according to James, was to be in danger of failing in faith. And that's where he segues into the second area about faith and temptation. He says in verse 13, When you are tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and nor does He tempt anyone. Instead, James says, temptation comes from three different sources. The first one, evil impulses, meaning they come from the inside of us. They come from the inside of me. They come from the inside of you. He talks in verse 14 about being enticed by lust. He says over in chapter 4 and verse 2, he begins to address the problem of envy. People comparing and contrasting themselves with other people in the church and, and around the neighborhood. So he says temptation will come through three sources. The first are evil impulses. The second, and this is primarily chapter 2 in the first couple of verses there, it's wealth and status. But it's wealth and status in the sense of of, of comparing and contrasting and, 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 and favoring and creating partiality in the church. And then finally, it comes from Satan. There is in chapter 3 sort of this veiled reference to hell and to Satan in chapter 3, verse 6, and talking about the tongue. He says, the tongue is set on fire by Gehenna. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, you know what you need to do when it comes to temptation is resist the devil. 
And then he says in chapter 1 and verse 18, an incredibly important verse. He says, He chose us. God chose us to give us birth through the Word of truth that we might be a kind of what? First fruit. Circle that word in your Bible. That we might be a kind of first fruit of all He created. A first fruit, a first fruit, a first fruit. It's found all over the Bible, is it not? It's found all over the place. And James says that He's given us birth through the Word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of all that He created. Well, you know about first fruit. You wait and you wait and you wait. You dig around the tree. You fertilize it. You water it. You take care of it. You prune it and you wait and you wait and you wait. And then all of a sudden, fruit. And after all of that work, to see the figs, to see the peaches, to see the plums, to see that pecan tree loaded with pecans is a beautiful thing. And what he means by that is as first fruits that believers, the people that he's writing to, who have put their faith in Christ Jesus, who have accepted God's grace, who have, who have, have become adopted by God into His family. He's saying you're like first fruits. You're like that first blossom that comes out on the tree that's absolutely beautiful and so filled with hope. First fruit, the promise of more to come, right? These are just the first. But beautiful. And, and lovely. And the first signs of what's to come. And that's what leads us in the next verse, beginning in verse 19, to what he has to say about what it means to be a person of faith and to have that faith in action. He says, what kind of person does the word of truth create? Verse 19, somebody that's very slow to speak. Somebody that receives the implanted word that saves. He's quick to hear. He's slow to anger. Why slow to anger? Well, that anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Verse 21, putting aside all filthiness. Verse 22, it's someone who does the word of God. In verse 26, controls the tongue. You know, that verse, if, if James was writing today, he would say, controls what he says and controls what he does with social media. Next year, I promise I'll preach on Facebook. Not on Facebook, but about Facebook. If you know me, I don't, I'm not on Facebook that much. Verse 27, it's somebody that takes care of widows and orphans. Verse 27, it's someone who keeps themselves polluted from the world. And it's taking care of these people, especially the vulnerable, that presents James the best segue into the next area, which is not just what a, a, a spiritually strong, mature Christian looks like, but what a healthy church looks like. And he begins by talking about a sickness that has creeped in, crept in to the church. He says in, in chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. You know what that is. As you read further, there is favoritism based on appearances being practiced in these church bodies. Somebody comes in and because of the way they're dressed in the car they drive, everybody thinks, oh, we've got to get that person because they'll be good for our church. 
Well, it was making judgments based on appearance. That was something that Jesus warned the Pharisees about. And because they did not heed that warning, Jesus is saying, you need to make a judgment about my life, but do not make it according to appearances. Don't skim across the top. Go deep. And because they did not heed that warning, it ultimately led to them rejecting Him in John chapter 7. Jesus did not fit the Pharisaic image of the successful Messiah. The problem was not looking more deeply than the surface and seeing the quality of faith in the person. And what that did is it, it made them an evil judge, James says. He says it's not wise because the, the affluent people in your culture are the ones that have created all the problems for you. They have, in showing this favoritism and this partiality, have in, insulted and dishonored the poor, which is not something that God does. They have not fulfilled the royal law of loving their neighbor as themselves. They have not been merciful, and they have, 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 and because they have not been merciful, they have brought themselves into judgment. What James is basically saying is that the expression of faith is more than mere confession. Confession is, 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 is important, but it's not the only thing. Faith is also about living out the ramifications of God looking down upon the humble state of your spiritual affairs and seeing that there was nothing there, as Isaiah would say, but filthy rags. And lifting you up by way of His Son going down and becoming a man. And not just a man, but a servant. And not just a servant, but one who was obedient unto death. And not one that just died but one who was cursed on the tree in order that we might be adopted and exalted to that place of heir. The expression of faith is more than confession. In other words, faith that never gets beyond sentiment, that's just a lot of words, and never gets to practical action is not really the faith that the Bible describes. And Paul offers an illustration, uh, uh, James offers an illustration. He says, you know, you have a Christian brother or sister. They come into your assemblies. You see them all the time. Maybe they're on the pew next to you. And they don't have food. They do not have clothing. And you say at the end of the, of, of the shepherd's prayer, the last thing you say to him as you go about your business is, go in peace, be warmed and filled. While they're sitting there freezing to death and starving. James says there's not even the most basic display of love and mercy. You're not even giving the most basic display of love and mercy. You're not, you're not, you're not even fulfilling the most basic display of mercy and, and love to that person in the way that God has shown it to you. And so he says in verse 17, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith has not accomplished what it intends to accomplish to create first fruits among God's creation that James mentions in chapter 1, verse 18, that is, of being a renovated human being. Faith is more than just a body of facts that are to believe. He says in verse 19, you believe that God is one? Great! Even the demons believe that and shudder. You know, we kind of say the same thing today. I would rather see a sermon than... Now, that's not going to get you out of hearing them. But we know the importance of seeing the words backed up by actions. Which leads to the final section. Actually, the second to last section. Real wisdom. It's so easy, 
all the time. It's just easier to talk a good fight. But talking has talking about the faith and just talking about the faith all the time uh, and, and talking about it in, in terms of like, well, you, we're talking about people that are rooted in rabbinical debate and just debating and debating and talking and talking and talking. It, it has its liabilities. Chapter 3, verse 2, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And James gives an illustration. He's talking about teachers. People who are supposed to know what it is that they're talking about. They, they know their subject, correct? Then he asks, how is it that you can bless God out of one side of your mouth but curse God on the other? Curse the one that is made in the image of God. He says, if you really want to know what wisdom looks like, verse 13, who's wise and understanding among you, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Drop down to verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving and considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Which leads to the final section, the cure for the healthy church. James, at the end of the letter, asks, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from the desires that battle within you? It comes from desires and coveting and disengagement with God and selfishness and worldliness versus godliness. God wants something completely different for His first fruits in creation. So He says in chapter 4, verse 5, Do you think Scripture says without reason that He jealously longs for the Spirit He has caused to dwell in us? But He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So the cure, submit to God. Resist Satan. Draw near to God and allow God to draw near to you. Wash your hands and purify your heart. Get serious about godliness. Get humble. Don't judge people wrongly. Accept that all of life is in God's hands. Do the good that you know to do. Be patient and to pray and confess. You know, in the year 62 A.D., eight years before the destruction of Jerusalem, there was about a three to four month interval between the death of the Roman procurator uh, Portius Festus and his replacement, a guy named Lucius Albinus. And during that three to four month interval, period of time between the death of one and the arrival of the new one, the high priest in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem has never been a very easy place to live historically, the high priest, Ananus II, decided it was time to clean house. Enough of this Christianity. So he began rounding up leaders who were not on the same page with his brand of Judaism. And James, the brother of Jesus, was one of these who were arraigned and trained, uh, tried by the Sanhedrin. And he was accused of breaking the law in order, uh, in other words, not practicing traditional Judaism. And he was stoned to death. The guy that wrote this letter. I can't help but think that, uh, that when James wrote this letter, he sort of saw that coming. The leader in the church of Jerusalem 
as we know from the book of Acts. We also know from the Gospels that at the beginning of his life, he was not a believer in his older brother Jesus as the Messiah. But later on, became completely converted to his brother and the grace that his brother offered. And I think that there was, there was such a transformation in his heart that as he saw the suffering coming and, and, he, and he saw all, all of the problems that would, would come because of his faith, that was okay. Because he knew that a person coming to faith was not going to be made perfect in an instant, but it was going to be through all of life, walking with God, following in the steps of Jesus, that he would be transformed. And I think that one of the things that he was trying to communicate to those of us who have been disciples of Jesus for a short period of time or a long period of time is that there is a way to live that is always right regardless of the circumstances around you. So many times we look for those circumstances to make us happy and to give us that joy when all along, all the time, God has been trying to pour it into our heart regardless of what's going on around us. We've just gone through the week of Thanksgiving and people are giving thanks for all kinds of things. For some of us, what we need to do this morning is to think of the words of James and to thank God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength for the grace that sets us free to live abundantly. And to be the kind of people that God always created human beings to be and has modeled for us perfectly in the Messiah, in Christ Jesus Himself. But for others that maybe have never committed themselves to, to Jesus and have never become a child of God, you know, the answer is not in trying to do more, but in accepting more. Accept more the fact that you'll never get there. You'll never be able to, to buy your way in, earn your way in, work your way in, deserve your way into the kingdom of God. That's not the way that it works. We can't do it. So it comes down to accepting what He has done for us in the Christ. And that is to take all of the things that we have done wrong and to pay the price for them so that we don't have to. So He dies the death that we should die because He lived the life that we should have lived. And because He did, and through accepting through faith what He did for us, we get that life back. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. Maybe there's some ways that we can minister to you this morning. It, it, it's, it's never too late. As long as you have time, you have time. It's never too late. But these shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there, there are some kind of need that you have on your heart, on your soul, come down and talk to them. As Jeff leads us in this song, let's stand and praise God together.